I'll be doing this scripture reading for us today. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 5, verse 25 to 34 in the New International Version. Uh, you can follow along with me on the screen behind me or in your Bibles. Starting with verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to continue in our miracles series today. I've been asking the question, what are the last couple of miracles I want us to touch on before we move on from this really, I think, great book? And uh, I was drawn to this story. And I think it's kind of a special miracle story in the book of Mark. A couple of reasons. One, we get a little bit more backstory than usual about her affliction. We understand that she's been uh, at, uh, at battling this illness for a while to no avail. Uh, number two, uh, it's special because it's squeezed into the middle of a larger, more uh, valid, if you will, healing story. It's the story of how Jesus raised Jairus' daughter uh, from the dead. And number three, uh, I personally can't help but relate to this backstory that this affliction that she had for 12 years, it's long standing, it's a persistent condition. And she's at the end of herself, at the end of her human resources. Lots of effort she's put into it, but to no avail. Uh, One bit of research led me to uh, think about the idea of loss. And uh, there's a short little list here that this author had compiled about what people who have long-standing illness in their life, the kind of loss they feel as they deal with their affliction over time. And uh, this author points out, one, that there is a loss of control, that you just feel like nothing is working because this part of your body isn't working or this area in your life feels so broken that everything else feels out of control as well. Secondly, there is a loss of identity because when you are sick for a long time, you begin to be identified by others and by yourself by the sickness. You are your sickness. 
Number three, you experience a loss of certainty. You can't count on anything because everything is contingent upon how you're doing according to this condition. You know, things like how you vacation or how you work or how you relate to others, what you're able to do with them because they're doing stuff, but maybe you can't because you don't know what kind of day or week or month you're going to have. Loss of certainty. Fourth, you experience a kind of loss of societal connection. It begins to feel like the world around you is just healthy. And they're just sort of just mobile and able. And they're moving at a clip that you just can't keep up with. So you feel disconnected and different from the rest of the world. Number five, you experience a loss of resources. You have less time, less energy, less money. And your network is tapped out. You've asked everyone to help you. And people are sort of just used to you and you feel like you don't know where else to go. You don't know what else to do and you don't know how you're going to do it. And then lastly, and maybe the worst of all, you feel a loss of hope. You notice the story mentions that instead of getting better, she grew worse. What does it feel like? To grow worse. Day after day, year after year, to be getting worse. What happens to your heart and to your mind and to your outlook? On top of all of these, um, because of her specific context, which you can read about in Leviticus 15, starting with verse 19, if you would like, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean. By law, by regulation, everyone around her deemed her, labeled her as unclean. We don't have really a way to uh, understand what this is like. The closest equivalent that I can think of is maybe being branded an offender. What would that be like for you if you were labeled an offender? It would come to define how you move about in our society. Imagine every time you were thinking about interacting with the world, you knew what they would be interacting with before they actually got to you. They'd be interacting with your label, offender. How would that come to impact your existence? And on top of all that, she was also deemed to be cursed. Back in uh, her time, if you had an illness, you were considered to be cursed of God. Maybe God favors you less. Maybe there is some punishment that God is meeting out on you because of something you've done wrong or even something that your family line deserves up to the uh, second and third generation, the uh, law taught. So another example of this is, remember, there was a guy that Jesus and his disciples ran into who was born blind. And remember the disciples' first question to Jesus? They asked Jesus, this man is born blind. What did he do wrong or what did his parents do that he is this way? That was the working assumption. If you were chronically ill, if you had a long-standing condition, it's because you were cursed. You were also cut off from God and God's people. You were in a class all by yourself, estranged, alienated, isolated. 
And you also didn't have human contact. If you read Leviticus 15, you'll see that people who uh, were clean, who didn't have uh, any kind of standing condition like this, weren't allowed to touch her at all. What would it be like if everybody was hands off with you? How would you feel? What if that persisted for 12 long years? And all of these conditions led her to a state of desperation. What does desperation do? Have you ever felt desperate? Do you remember a time when you were desperate? What's it like to be desperate? What mode are you in? What's your emotional and mental state when you are desperate? One of the things that's not spelled out for us in this story uh, is that she was petrified, just scared to death about being found out that she's the one who touched the hem of his robe. The law in her time instructed that all Israelite males had to make fringes on the four corners of their garments. And they had to use a special blue cord and sew it onto each corner. And the fringe uh, in the Hebrew is called, uh, and I can't pronounce this for the life of me, it's spelled T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. Z-Z-I-T. It doesn't sound like Hebrew to me, so I know I'm doing it wrong. Uh, But it was important, and it was special. And a man's cloak was considered to be his most valuable uh, and uh, uh, personal possession uh, that a man could own. Do you remember the last thing that was auctioned off that Jesus owned? It was his outer garment. That's his cloak or robe. And it was Jesus' most precious and special garment. And they, that's why the soldiers were fighting over it. It's considered to be very valuable. And because of the intimate and special nature of this garment, uh, the law mandated that no one, absolutely no one, was allowed to intentionally touch the fringe of a man's cloak except his immediate family. And so you could imagine uh, that when Jesus asked Who touched my clothes? That wasn't uh, a harmless question Jesus was asking. He wasn't just curious. The woman experienced that as extremely threatening. If you touched a man's cloak and you weren't uh, part of his immediate family, it was considered a kind of act of depravity or perversion. Her method of procuring or healing was born of desperation and it was disgraceful at worst and superstitious at best. As I began to study this passage and start my research process, I found myself just meditating on the story of this. I think the power uh, in this passage is not in the uh, little pieces that compose this story, but it's in the story itself. And what I want to do today is I want to invite all of us to meditate on this story. And the way I want to do that is I want to ask you to sort of switch gears a little bit in your brain and the way you listen to a sermon. I want to ask you to sit back a little bit. And as I read to you my meditation, uh, 
I want to ask you to sort of uh, soak it and listen to the words and consider uh, how you feel and how you relate and connect to this story. Because the power is in the story this morning. My meditation is composed of three movements or three parts, and I'll read you those three parts. And then after that, I want to lead us through two uh, application points that I want us to pray about today, and then bring those, uh, that prayer that you come up with uh, into our communion time together. Okay? Here is meditation, my meditation, part one. Why is this story here? This story shouldn't have happened. Jesus was on his way to heal the daughter of a prominent church leader, Jairus. He's worthwhile. He's legitimate. There's even a crowd traveling with Jesus to show their validation and support for Jairus. This woman, on the other hand, is an interruption, a distraction, and inconvenience. She is a nobody and a nothing, and her issues, as problematic as they have been to her, are irrelevant and insignificant to everyone else. She doesn't matter. And she knew that too. That's why she doesn't present herself. That's why she hides amongst the crowd and steals a touch of the hem of Jesus' garment. It's the desperate, persistent move of one who is least, last, and lost in the eyes of her society and her own. She's a woman. She's unclean. She's poor. She is alienated. She's cursed. She could have just stolen a healing and have been left unattended to. She could have been a soon-forgotten annoyance, like a mosquito that is swatted away. But instead, Jesus stops the show and insists on bringing her up on stage, not to shame or critique her, but to lift her up. The obviously urgent matter on everyone else's agenda was to heal Jairus' daughter. And I think Jesus knew that any delay would mean death for the daughter. Later, he would let Lazarus die as well, not to mention his own undefended death. But death never seems to be a consideration for Christ. It's almost like he's an open, he has an open tab on death. Just add it on. I'll take care of it all in a little bit, he seems to be saying. So he calls this frightened woman up on stage and bestows upon her the dignity, restoration, freedom, and hope that only love itself can give. Did love convey the healing, or did the healing convey love? She thought she was touching him, but in truth, it turns out he touched her and changed her forever. What do we make of such a God? This God is unlike any God or human. With whom are we dealing? How shall we approach? Part two. 
a well-known pastor and a bit of a social revolutionary in her own right, interprets this, this story as God doing away with categories of clean and unclean. She deems the human categories we struggle with as relics of a bygone covenant. Are our churches and cultures just slow to catch up to God's vision of a brave new world? Is Jesus really offering us just a new perspective where categories don't exist? I don't think Jesus was abolishing categories. He was abolishing the estrangement that categories naturally inflicted upon the lesser beings of society. A catch-22 existed in her day, I think as it does today. What she needed was help from people and from God. But her need kept her at bay from the very people and the God she was restricted to receiving help from. So she was stuck. Jesus did for her what she and all her resources could not do. What did he do? The surface answer is that he healed her of her physical affliction which then worked to reverse the dominoes that had fallen in her life. He restored her ceremonially and connected her socially. Is that it? Just a sort of set it and forget it solution to all of her problems? Or maybe, maybe God was doing something in her long before this moment arrived. And Jesus, at this moment, simply joined God in what he had already been doing. Jesus' healing was not a new work, but the continuation of a already present work that was happening on a new day. Part three. I can picture her some years later remembering this encounter, appreciating it for all that it did for her. She can count the ways that this power encounter changed her life. But something else has been alive and growing in her. For this woman who was lost and cut off, the healing miracle was the bottle that carried the message of God's love. The part of the day that she returns to most often is not the actual healing part, but the moment right afterwards when Jesus stopped and insisted on lifting her up in full view and hearing of the crowd. Instead of condemning her, he raised her up and stopped the clock for a desperate but undeserving soul who touched the hem of a healer with all the intent of stealing a healing. For 12 years, she had expended all her power to heal herself. And now in this moment, she had one more grab at healing left in her. But healing came not because she grabbed, but because he gave. It felt to her not like effort, but like grace. Still, she can hear the piercing question, who touched me? Who touched me? Jesus insisting again, who touched me? She became afraid and hid, but he found her. Or maybe she was never lost on him 
in the first place. And this is what she thinks about. The love which she didn't deserve or even know to look for and certainly didn't think to ask for, but which found her and is now what defines her existence. She didn't suffer for 12 years to only value something so intangible like God's love. Of course, the healing itself restored her inside and out. But this thing, this love, God's love, the truth that she is a beloved child of God pervades everything and puts everything else in their proper place. Maybe God's love is like a warm blanket of light that covers. Or maybe God's love is like the foundation on which everything else is built. Or maybe God's love is like a thread that's holding all the other parts together. She doesn't know, except that she does. We have afflictions, insecurities that just won't go away. Even with maturity and age, we have ailments in our bodies and years-long conflict with loved ones. Problems, oh, so many problems, our society, our world. It would help a lot if the suffering could end and we could be freed from it. If justice would roll down and tears would be wiped away, but God's love, what about God's love? I guess my remaining question is, will there ever come a time when I and you and we will be healed of our long-standing affliction, of our human condition, Will God's love ever reign inside and out? That's my meditation. I want to invite us to think about two application points. The first one is more personal, and it's a question I want to invite you to answer in your mind. The question is this. Is there an area in your life where you are desperate enough to invite healing and change. Where the pain of staying the same is now greater than the pain of taking a risk. Is there an area in your life where you feel like you have nothing left to lose? It's bad, and it's been bad for a long time. And you need intervention. You need breakthrough. You need fundamental change. If you have an area like that in your life, I invite you to put a bookmark on that, those things. And ask, what should I pray about these things? What's the prayer? What's the ask I want to make today? Second application starts with this question that I want to invite you to think about. Are there people groups in our society who are untouchable, disenfranchised, under-resourced, and stuck? Are there broken relationships and realities in our world that you are conscious of, that you are afflicted by, 
that you are surrounded by, that you hear about all the time. It feels like it's just been bad and messed up and wrong for a long, long time. And you would like to ask God to put an end to the suffering there. You want to ask God, God, how can I be more engaged? How can I show greater concern? How can I be directly involved? How can I be a redemptive, catalytic agent of change in these areas? Do any areas come to mind? Do any people groups come to mind? I made a uh, list for myself, the first few things that came to my mind. I invite you to think about these things and add them to your own. The first is I thought about the poor in our world, the poor all around us, the poor in our midst. I can't help but think that power begets more power and poverty more poverty. I thought about the broken and dysfunctional relationship between blacks and whites in our country. It's been there since the inception of our country. Two, three hundred years later, here we still are in this stuck and broken and dysfunctional relationship. I remember when President Obama was first elected president, my mother, who is a Korean-speaking immigrant, she wept. She said, maybe, Peter, maybe, because this man is going to help us. I thought about the relationship between the Islamic world and the rest of the world. How long will this cycle continue? How much more terror How much more war? How much more fear and hatred and paranoia and bigotry? How much more ignorance? Related to that, I thought about that part of the area and the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And then moving from there, I thought about the refugees in our world. I have a friend who's adopted several refugee children. The stories they carry in their bodies. I thought about trafficked children and women. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I thought about victims of war victims of natural disaster and catastrophe. I thought about all of the abused people, children in our world. My mind wandered to people who are hungry and cold all the time. Imagine being hungry and cold all the time where you just can't get full and you just can't get warm. I thought about the victims of systemic oppression and injustice. 
systems that are designed to love the powerful but ignore and exploit the poor. Two considerations. The first is that the woman that we read about today, the bleeding woman, was healed because and only because power went out. If you want to be a vessel of divine power being poured out through you, I want to suggest to you that is a good thought because there's no healing without power going out. The reason there isn't healing in this woman is because she herself, within herself, by herself, is powerless. She's run out of means. She doesn't have the power. She needs power from the outside. She needs intervention from without. She needs other people, other resources. Religion, you know, you think about theology and being right with God and why we believe in Christ, why we practice this life of being church together. Scriptures make it clear that being right is about you, but being righteous is about other people. It's about putting power and effort towards others, knowing that that's how healing happens. And unless people are willing to output power and effort on behalf of others, healing doesn't happen. I want to give you a couple of guiding principles as you form your own prayers that you want to pray to God. Consider this, that the power to heal others is not in the touching. Notice, lots of people were touching Jesus. That's why the disciples are arguing with Jesus. Are you serious, they ask? Are you really going to ask who touched you? Everyone's touching you. You're the show right now. You're, you're being touched. But that's not the point. The point is somebody touched Jesus with a different intent, with a different expectation, with a different hope. And that's what I want to ask you to do as you pray. As you reach out to Jesus in prayer, consider what your intent is. Consider what your hope is. And then secondly, as you think about offering yourself as a vessel of God's power and healing, consider this truth, that hope shows up when people who care show up. That when you are desperate, you will remain desperate unless other people who care show up. And the invitation to you is, do you want to be one who shows up? Maybe you want to read and learn a little bit more about some area of injustice in our world. Maybe you want to create some experience for yourself and expose yourself to uh, seeing different stories that are out there. Maybe you want to be personally engaged. Maybe you want to give financially, but also of yourself to some cause. I want to invite you to think about that. Please pray with me now as we move into uh, communion that Julie will lead for us. 
God, we pray to you this morning. We pray for you to help us identify uh, with this woman who was suffering under affliction for so long. Help us to identify with her, not just for ourselves, but also for our world. As you touch us, as you find us, as you heal us and give us hope, I pray that we can be vessels of your power to a world that is in affliction for so long. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our efforts to the world and to your healing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.